Second Chronicles chapter 20. Got it. Front rows got it. Second Chronicles chapter 20. We're going to hear 600 got it's here. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you'd help us to get it today, Lord, that the lesson that you have for us, you minister it to our hearts, that you would instruct us in godly living and instruct us how to live in difficult times, Lord, just when life isn't working out the way that we thought it would, when circumstances are overwhelming. And I know because we know each other in this church, there's so many people in here that that applies to right now. The circumstances are big and scary and gnarly. And so we thank you for Second Chronicles chapter 20, where we have a protocol for difficult times. We ask the Holy Spirit, you'd minister this to our hearts, that you'd really make it applicable, that you give us insight, discernment, wisdom, and knowledge concerning how to live for you and walk with you. Lord, please anoint me now to communicate these truths faithfully. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now, last week in Hebrews chapter 4, we talked about entering the Lord's rest. And this is sort of a continuation of that. We're going to get back to Hebrews next week. And I know you are all anticipating Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, as am I. And we'll spend at least a couple weeks in that passage concerning the Word of God being sharper than a two-edged sword and living and active. But we talked last week about rest. And there were two facets to rest. There was a salvific facet, that is, when we enter into salvation through Jesus Christ, there is a rest that is experienced in that relationship. And then we talked about daily practical rest in him, that part of the goal of the Christian is to be resting in the Lord at all times, pursuing that intimacy of relationship that brings peace that surpasses comprehension and joy, which is his joy, not as the world gives, but his joy. And so we talked about that last week quite a bit. But here's the thing. We approached it last week really from the vantage point of a warning about not entering into the rest because of disbelief. So it, it was sort of a negative lesson, so to speak, uh, about the rest of the Lord. It, it was a warning because the Hebrews were living in a difficult time of persecution where their very lives were being threatened for their faith and they were being tempted to fall away from the faith. And so the author was giving them this warning of why they ought not to fall away from the faith because they might miss the rest of God. And so we approached it from that place of disbelief and being warned not to enter into disbelief. We did so because the text did so. Having now received that warning against not entering into his rest because of disbelief and, and having had uh, an example from the ancient life of Israel, remember in Numbers 13 and 14 at Kadesh Barnea, when they didn't trust the Lord in the pivotal moment of life, they disbelieved, they didn't trust the Lord in the pivotal moment. Now we want to change the focus, change the approach to that of belief. We've seen what 
disbelief and not trusting the Lord looks like at critical moments, but what does it look like to believe and trust the Lord at the pivotal junctures in life? And again, we'll turn to ancient Israel for an example. Now, you got to remember, the things that happened to ancient Israel are not all allegorical. They're actual historical accounts, but they were recorded for our instructions. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says so. It says, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages, the end of the ages have come. So we're going to learn now how to maintain, cultivate belief and trust in difficulty through ancient Israel. So let's start reading 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Start here in verse 1. It says, Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Munites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Verse 3, And Jehoshaphat was afraid. Stop right there. Look now at the end of the story in verse 30. Verse 30. The end result is this. So the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God gave him rest on all sides. Here's the deal. How did Jehoshaphat go from being tremendously threatened to being thoroughly terrified to having peace on all sides? What were the steps? What was his action? What was the protocol? What did he do? What did the Lord do that took him from terror and threat and difficulty to rest and peace and tranquility? The situation was indeed dire. Uh, Jehoshaphat was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel is divided at this time, Israel to the north, uh, Judah to the south. And so he is a king over the southern kingdom, Judah. He rules from Jerusalem. Now, in Israel, the, the paramount border is the Jericho River, right? The Jericho River is really the defining border. And what happened is these people were people groups on the other side of the Jericho, the east side of the Jericho River. And they crossed over. It says in verse 1 that they were already at En Gedi. Excuse me, in verse 2, they were already at En Gedi. So what we have is a situation where directly east of where Jehoshaphat was, an army came across, and from the south an army came, and another one in between. And they gathered at En Gedi just about 30 miles south of Jerusalem. And their intent was to push the Israelites out of the land and resettle. That's very clear from the context here. We see that in verse 11 and in other verses. Their intent was to settle the land, to push Israel out, to capture, to lay hold of, to tie down, to monopolize the land. So really, he's finding himself invaded by multiple armies. They're already in the land, and they're just a few miles from where he is. And it says that he was very afraid in verse 3. What was then his behavior? What did he do? What sort of decisions did he make? And more importantly, really, how did God respond? Let's look first at what Jehoshaphat did. 
Let's read here in verse 3. It says, And Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Notice this. Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord. That's the first thing. The first way that he dealt with this overwhelming problem, this surprise circumstance, was he turned his attention to seek the Lord. And that's what we ought to be doing. It's not as easy as it sounds because there were a lot of things that would have been demanding his attention at that time. He certainly would have had his subjects in the kingdom who would have been uh, fearful themselves and frightened and would have been flocking to Jerusalem and saying, look, they're down in Engedi just there on the east side of the, uh, or the west side of the Dead Sea. We saw them there and it's a huge, massive army with all their stuff. What are you going to do for us? And he would have had his counselors and his generals, so to speak, coming and saying, well, we ought to do this and that and this and the other. He would have had the well-being of his family and the whole kingdom. All these things going through his mind. Notice what he does. He turns his attention to seek the Lord. He takes hold of all those thoughts and all those things that would compete for his attention at this decisive critical moment, and he puts his attention on the Lord. Now, we're told to do this in the New Testament in the context of spiritual warfare. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5 says, For though we walk in flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words, in times of tremendous warfare or just circumstantial difficulty, Part of what we need to do is get the thoughts together and get focused on Jesus Christ. Get our eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith. And what it means to take those thoughts captive is those thoughts will want to draw you in a lot of different directions. And at that moment, your options begin to get weighed out by your intellect. You know what I mean? And you've got your own human ingenuity that you could appeal to. You've got your own financial wherewithal. You've got your relationships. You've got your skill set. You've got those people that you rely upon. But what the Bible teaches us is to take all of those thoughts captive to Jesus Christ. In other words, submit them all to the authority and the headship of Jesus. Get Jesus on the throne of the situation. Stop and say, okay. A lot of stuff competing for my heart and my attention, but right now, Jesus, what would you have me do? That's the crux of it all. Unfortunately, in Christianity, it's not as common as it ought to be. We should go to the Lord first, but the situation is often that the Lord is kind of a last-ditch effort. I remember the story of a, a ship that was going to sink, and, and it was they were in rough seas, and, and it was going down, so on and so forth, and a lady came to the captain and said, Captain, how bad is it? What, what, what should we do? And he said, well, I think we're just going to have to pray. And she said, oh, it's that bad? There's nothing else we could do? <laughs> and that's really our attitude. I mean, that really is. Oh, there's nothing else we could do? I guess I'll pray. You see, that's backwards thinking. That's the thinking of the world. But we're members of a different kingdom now. We have a counterculture type of thinking. And so the first approach is to the Lord. And what we do first is submit it to him and pray and bring our thoughts and our actions into obedience. This is quite easy 
when you've handled thoroughly the word of God. Because you've hidden the word of God in your heart and the word of Christ is dwelling richly in your mind. His precepts, his truths are already here. And so it's easy then by the, with the help of the Holy Spirit to begin to bring things in line. If you don't handle the word of God, you're just kind of at a loss in these moments. What does God have to say about my situation? I've got no idea. And it makes it harder to trust him. But when you've handled the word of God, you see his trustworthiness and his track record. And, and the more time that you saturate yourself in the word, the easier it is in these difficult times to go, okay, okay, I remember Jehoshaphat. Can I remember how the Lord delivered him? All right, I remember what the word of God has to say about the situation. And it's easier to take those thoughts captive and bring them in line with Jesus Christ. So the first thing he did was he turned his attention to seek the Lord, made that the priority. Second thing that he did was Jehoshaphat led others to do the same. It says, and Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. So the second thing that he did very wisely was he led others to also put their attention on the Lord. He proclaimed a fast. Those that were under his influence, under his leadership, he said, here's the deal, guys. We're all gonna fast to seek the Lord. And in that day, Fasting was really profound in the sense that a lot of your time was spent in food preparation, gathering food, so on and so forth. Now we just kind of open up the fridge and throw it in the microwave. And so in fasting, we save like two minutes in food prep time. But back then, it was a large portion of your day. If you weren't going to eat, that you'd have to set aside, and they would set it aside to praying and seeking and waiting upon and listening to the Lord. That's the idea of fasting. And he made everyone in the kingdom do it. Now, those of you that are leaders... And it's more than you think. If you're a husband, you're a leader. If you're a father, you're a leader. If you're a mom, you're a leader. A lot of you are leaders. And in times of difficulty, what we understand is it's usually not just us who are influenced, but those within our sphere of influence are also impacted by the difficulty. And so what we want to do is help others to also get their attention on the Lord. Fathers, we need to do this for our kids. Husbands, we need to do this for our wives. Moms, so on and so forth. We need to do this for those within our sphere of influence. He got them on the same page with him. Next, Jehoshaphat prayed. So first, he turned his attention to seek the Lord. He led others to do the same, which got everybody of one mind and one accord. And then Jehoshaphat prayed. Let's look at his prayer. There's much for us to learn in his prayer. Starting in verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court, and he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, art thou not God in the heavens? Art thou not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in thy hand, so that no one can stand against thee. Didst thou not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and give it to the descendants of Abraham thy friend forever? And they lived in it, and they've built thee a sanctuary for thy name, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword, or judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before thee, for thy name is in this house, and cry to thee in our distress, and thou wilt hear and deliver us. And now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab... And 
and Mount Seir, whom thou didst not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. They turned aside from it and they did not destroy them. Behold how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from thy possession, which thou hast given us as an inheritance. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And all Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. Notice this prayer. This was a prayer in the moment of difficulty. This was a prayer in the face of overwhelming circumstances. It wasn't a situation where Israel brought this upon themselves. Often that happened in their lives and it happens in our lives. We make a bad decision, a wrong term, and we reap the consequences. That might be a different prayer. They were just following the Lord and minding their business, and here it comes. It's like a brother I talked to um, right before service began who's got a, oh, you just discovered a little hole in his heart. And a little clot recently got through that hole and went to his brain, and he had a little mini stroke and now he's got a blind spot in his eye and so he's got to go in and get heart surgery to deal with this hole in his heart and and he doesn't know if this little blind spot in one of his eyes is ever going to go away and you know this this wasn't the result of sin he was just living his life and loving Jesus and doing his gig and bam that's just how life is that's just the reality of living in a fallen world. That, that, that experience is common to all of humanity. And if you haven't experienced that yet, where just radical, gnarly things come out of the blue that are just overwhelming, armies, so to speak, surrounding you on every side, wanting to displace you from all that you know and love, it will happen eventually. That's part of life. We're guaranteed that. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. So here is his prayer in one of those moments where it just seems like the wheels are coming off. Life isn't going how he expected. I want you to notice that the prayer starts with praise. He starts with God's praises. Verse 6, once again, he says, O Lord, the God of our fathers, art thou not God in the heavens? A rhetorical question. And art thou not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in thy hand so that no one can stand against thee. Notice what he does. He immediately starts to praise the Lord. He first turned his attention, took all those thoughts captive, all those competing voices, all those options. He took them, he took them and he turned his attention to the Lord and took them all captive to the obedience of Christ. And then he got everybody around him on the same page. Come on, guys. We're going to seek the Lord on this thing. And then he starts to praise the Lord. And this is really the crux of the protocol in the time of difficulty is to praise the Lord in difficult circumstances. Though your circumstances may have changed, he hasn't changed, amen? amen. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. And so if he is worthy of praise when everything was hunky-dory, he's worthy of praise when everything is difficult. He's absolutely worthy. And what praise does is it gets our attention off ourselves and onto him. Very practical now tool here for helping us to put our attention on the Lord because we very quickly get in a pity party and a woe is me and nobody understands and what about me and why me and if he and why wouldn't they? And let's just agree right now, that's a downward spiral. That is utterly destructive. That doesn't lead to anywhere but we get caught up in that and we could stay in that for hours, days, weeks, months, some people years. 
so destructive to humanity. And so what we know we can do is just stop, get it together, and praise the Lord. Just begin to praise the Lord. Now, he probably didn't feel like it. But God's praise is not dependent on our feelings. The church has got to get that. The church in America has got to get that because we are so feeling-driven and we are so consumer-driven. If you make me feel good, I might do it. If you meet my needs, I might get into it. We are so consumer-driven and it comes into the church and that is the height of wickedness. Most Christians show up in church saying, this better be good. It better be on time. It better be good. Temperature better be right. I'm already upset from how far I had to park away. <laughs> and you need to meet my needs because I have a bunch of them. Hurry, you got an hour. Two hours, you better do really good. <laughs> it's the attitude of most Christians. It's an abomination to show up at church that way. It's an absolute, utter abomination that is never what the church was meant to be. In the church, we're called together through the cross of Jesus Christ to praise him. We're called to praise him. And it's not dependent on how we feel. You show up at church feeling horrible, you offer up the sacrifice of praise. I'll tell you what, it's going to change the way that you feel. It's just going to change your perspective of things. Because all of a sudden, when we praise the Lord, it's called exalting. It's called magnifying. And so we magnify him. All of a sudden, he's bigger in our hearts and our minds in the circumstances. But when we stay in the woe is me, then the circumstances get bigger and bigger and bigger and God seems smaller and smaller and smaller and we just easily get overwhelmed. It would have been so easy for Jehoshaphat to flip out, to panic, to freak out. There was every reason to be overwhelmed except for his God. So he starts his prayer with God's praises. Philippians chapter four, New Testament equivalent for us. Verses six through eight, it says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Notice, in times where you would otherwise be anxious, let God know what's going on, but start with thanksgiving. That is theologically the right way to approach God. We need to cultivate that, practice that. And here's the promise when we do that. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's a promise you take to the bank. Anxiety and difficulty comes, and it's common to all of us. The protocol is to begin to praise the Lord, and then let our requests be made known. Tell the Lord what we need. And there's a promise here. The peace of God, which surpasses understanding. It means that you might not understand the situation, or how it's going to work out, or how you're going to make ends meet, or how you're going to get beyond it, or over it, or around it. But God is not dependent upon circumstances. And so the peace that he gives us, remember, it's his peace. The peace that he gives us surpasses what we can understand, what's temporal, what's tangible, what we know. And then it gives us a little hint here. It says in, in verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. There is such a great strategy for difficulty. Instead of dwelling on all the what ifs and why did they and why me and how come, you start to dwell on these things. Whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellence, and worthy of praise, dwell on those things. I don't know where to find those things other than the word of God and God himself. 
And so we saturate ourselves in, in, in his word and in his presence in those times. Asa, if you want to turn back a few chapters to chapter 14 of 2 Chronicles. King Asa, another king of the southern kingdom of Judah, and a good king at that. Asa and Jehoshaphat are often spoken about together because they're a couple of the better kings. He was also facing an army coming against him. And he also prayed to the Lord. And his prayer is found in verse 11 of 2 Chronicles 14. It says, Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one besides thee to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in thee, and in thy name have come against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God. Let not man prevail against thee. I want you to notice something about that prayer. That prayer in the English is 54 words long. 52 of them are praise. Two of them are help us. That's all he says. The rest of that prayer is all praise to God and then a simple, oh yeah, and would you help us? That's the right way to approach the Lord. You see, we're off balance. We're crying and moaning and groaning and na, 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 na. It's not the biblical approach. The biblical approach is to praise the Lord because he's right and he's worthy and it sets us right and then let our requests be made known to him. Again, that's exactly what it says in Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So, in times of difficulty, do that. Build an altar of praise. Remember that it's our Lord who opens up a door of hope in the valley of trouble. That's who he is. Now, the next thing that we see about this prayer, it starts with God's praises, and then he stands on God's promises. Verses 7 through 9 of 2 Chronicles 20. Jehoshaphat starts with God's praises and then he stands on God's promises. 2 Chronicles 20, starting in verse 7. Didst thou not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham thy friend forever? And they lived in it and have built thee a sanctuary there for thy name, saying, Should evil come upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand in the house of the Lord and cry to thee in our distress, and you will hear us and deliver us. Notice what he's doing. He's standing on the promises of God. There's two promises there. The promise that God would give the land to them and to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's standing firm on that promise. God, you brought us here. You haven't told us you're going to take us out of here. There were times that God did that because of their disobedience, but he always sent to them a prophet to warn them. There's been no such prophet at this time. This is one of the good kings. He's doing right things. And he says, hey, God, you brought us here, so I'm trusting that you're going to preserve us in this place and see us through this difficulty. And then he, and then he counts on another promise of God, and when we come to your house, you're going to hear us. When God first commanded Moses to meet the, to, uh, excuse me, build the tabernacle in the wilderness, he said, I will meet my people there and I will listen to them there. And he's standing on that promise. Now, the word of God is full of promises for our life. Full of promises for our life. And if the word of Christ is dwelling richly in you, if you've hidden the word of God in your heart because you spend time in the word of God, then in the moments of difficulty, the Holy Spirit can bring these promises to remembrance. 
Remember what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit? He will bring to remembrance all that I have taught you. But if you're going to remember something, it has to have come into the cabeza at least one time. (laughs) Otherwise, you can't bring it to memory, nor can the Holy Spirit if it hasn't been there. And so there's all these promises in the Word of God. And one of the deficiencies, one of the deficiencies, one of the deficiencies in the church is that we don't spend time in the Word of God. A small percentage, a infantile, single-digit percentage of Christians in America spend regular time in the Word of God. And so when difficulty comes, they act just like the world. They make the same decisions, the same mistakes, the same maneuvers, and the same wrangling. Having inundated themselves with the messages of the world, the message of the world is dwelling richly in them and not the word of God. And so when difficulty comes, they don't know the promises to stand on, so they go with the wisdom of the age. They go with the secular reasoning, the ideology and the philosophy, the ingenuity of humanity. And that is altogether folly. Jehoshaphat was able to stand on these promises because he knew what God had done in the past and he knew what God had said. He knew that God had promised the land. He knew that God said, I'll meet you and I'll hear you. And so he was able to stand firm on that and to draw great strength from that. So what that does then is it provides a course by which he could continue. Oh, okay, okay, I'll stay this course. I'm gonna stay on this promise. I'm not gonna leave the land because God said he's gonna keep us in the land as long as we dwelled in obedience. And I'm not gonna go and start praying to other gods or, or merely speak to my military advisors because God himself promised he would hear me. So you see how it began to chart out a course now for him in the face of difficulty? Simply because he knew two of the promises from the word. Speaking of promises, Joshua 21, 45 says, not one, good, uh, excuse me, not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to all the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. That was a testimony of the Joshua generation that came into the land. God made good on every single promise he made them. So Jehoshaphat here is drawing upon God's past record for his future assurance. Drawing on God's past record for his future assurance. And then Psalm 19 verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Problems that we get in today can often be extremely complicated and we need wisdom. God has wisdom for your life today. Wisdom from above, by his spirit and by his word. So this prayer, when Jehoshaphat prays, he starts with God's praises, he stands on God's promises, and next, he recalls God's purposes. Verses 10 and 11. And now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou didst not let Israel invade when they came out of Egypt. Verse 11. Behold how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from thy possession, which thou hast given us as an inheritance. What he's referring to is this. Back in Numbers chapter 20, before Israel went into the promised land in the time of the the wandering, they wanted to pass through the land of Edom. One of the kings, one of the people groups that is invading them now. And they said to the king of Edom, hey Edom, let us just pass through your land. We'll stay on the main highway. We won't turn to the right or the left. We're not going to take any of your produce. We're not going to milk any of your cows. We're not going to mess with you. Just let us pass through your land on the way to our land in Canaan. Just let us go through. 
And the Edomites wouldn't let him go through. And so it caused Israel to have to take a circuitous route and additional wanderings in the wilderness. And, and what is obvious from this text now is that they wanted to go against, against uh, Edom in war at that time, and the Lord wouldn't allow them. That's what's inferred here by what he says. Lord, you didn't let us go against them in Numbers 20, and now look, they're coming against us. So this isn't a calling of God to account. He's not saying, as we often do, look what you did, God. Do you really care? We should have taken care of them in Numbers 20, but because you wouldn't let us, now they're coming to get us. Don't ever talk to the Lord that way. Don't talk to your wife or your parents that way, much less the Lord. That's not what's happening here. He's not talking to the Lord that way. He's recalling simply, God, you've got to have a purpose in this. You wouldn't allow us to make war against them in Numbers 20, and now they're coming against us. You must have a purpose. He's trusting in the Lord's wisdom for their life. He's not second-guessing the Lord. Second-guessing the Lord. That's what happened to Peter when he began to sink in the waves. You know, we're warned in James 1 not to be double-minded because a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. The idea is a a man who second-guesses. We're called to trust the Lord. It's when we second-guess the Lord that we get unstable in all our ways. That's what happened to Abraham when he birthed Ishmael. He second-guessed the Lord. He believed the Lord initially for Isaac, and then he said, oh... Uh, maybe the Lord made a mistake. That's exactly what Satan said to Eve in the garden. Are you sure the Lord really said? That is tremendous folly. He's simply saying, hey, Lord, you didn't let us deal with them the first time, so I know that you've got a plan and a purpose right now. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 highlights this for us. Very familiar verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge the Lord, and he will make your path straight. Man, every Christian ought to commit this one to memory. This is so pivotal for difficult times in life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. There's where we go awry, because we often do that. We must confess now that our own understanding is limited. It's finite, and it's even perverted because of the fall of man. We don't have perfect understanding. It's folly to lean upon that. That's all that Abraham was doing when he birthed Ishmael once again. According to his own understanding, I'm 86, Sarah's 85. We better do this thing. We better make it happen somehow. Leaning on his own understanding. He's refusing to do that here. In all your ways, acknowledge him. What does it mean to acknowledge him? Number one, to come before him and say, hey, God, You're the Lord over my life. What do you want me to do? And what it also means to acknowledge him is, what does God have to say about this situation? What do God's precepts say about this? What does God's wisdom say? How would God's word and God's spirit lead me? Acknowledge his sovereignty and his wisdom and his righteousness and his rightness and act according to that. So Jehoshaphat starts with God's praises. He stands on God's promises. He recalls God's purposes. And then he makes it God's problem. Verse 12. Oh, our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we are powerless 
before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This is wonderful. He makes it God's problem. Do this frequently. Is not he your king and Lord anyway? Does he not want to take care of you? Make it God's problem. You're his, and so it is his problem. This is exactly what he's doing. He says, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I love that prayer. I almost want to get it tattooed or something. <laughs> That's a good, I don't have any yet. That's a good one. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And he even said explicitly at the beginning of the verse, Lord, will you, will you just deal with this for me? Or as it says in the, in the New American Standard, will thou not judge them, Lord? In other words, Lord, can you handle it for me? Don't you love when you have people in your life like that? I've got so many people in my life like that. I'm so blessed. First of all, my mom. Just anything in my life, my whole life that's going on. Hey, mom. She can just tell by the tone of my voice. She just goes, what do you want me to do? <laughs> it's wonderful to have that. Even dinner last night. We spent a, a long time at the beach yesterday surfing, hanging out with the family. Got horribly sunburned. Down there all day. Didn't want to have to go home and do dinner and dishes and all that. And so pulled up at my mom's house. What are you doing, sweetie? Hey, mom, um, dinner. Okay, what time? <laughs> Such a blessing to have someone like that in your life. Yeah. I even got to call out the menu, every single item on the menu. And say what time we would be there. And it was on the table to the moment. Unbelievable. How much better is God than my mom? Right? He wants to take care of us in this way. That, therefore, 1 Peter 5 says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Allow God to shoulder the problem. Cast it upon him. Put, put the weight of it in his court. Put the ball in his court. Lord, I'm going to trust you. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to do anything. You're still going to have to follow. You're going to have to be obedient. There's going to be a protocol. But the weight of it will depend upon him. That becomes evident now as we turn the corner and we see how the Lord responds to Jehoshaphat's prayer. Jehoshaphat started with God's praises, stands on God's promises, recalls God's purposes, and makes it God's problem. And look how the Lord responds. Number one, the Lord sends a prophet. God sent a prophet. Verse 14, then in the midst of the assembly, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benani, ben, that guy, the son of that guy, the son of Mattaniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. So, God sent his spirit upon this guy to go and prophesy to Israel. The point being, God answered. The thrust of the text not being necessarily on the prophet so much as on God answering the prayer. Remember, he had stood upon that promise. God, when we get in trouble, we're going to come to this house and pray to you. You're going to hear us. And God is confirming that he has indeed heard. I believe that God does this in our lives. And so we're encouraged to come to him. I like what Jeremiah 33, verses 2 through 3 says. Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name. 
Call to me and I will answer you. And I will tell you great and mighty things which you did not know. How good is that promise? There's a promise of scripture. Call on him, he'll answer us. And he's gonna tell us great and mighty things that we did not know. I like Psalm 143, verse eight. The psalmist says, let me hear your loving kindness in the morning. For I trust in you. Teach me the way in which I should walk. For to you I lift up my soul. You can be sure that that's a prayer that the Lord is going to answer. And the Lord may answer through a prophet. He may answer prophetically or through the word of God. But the Lord answers. We get tripped up because the answer isn't always yes. And so we get tripped up thinking there's no answer. Or... The answer is delayed. Remember Daniel chapter 10, spiritual warfare? The answer was delayed three weeks. The, the angel, when he finally came, said, Daniel, the moment you began to pray, I was dispatched from heaven to give you the answer, but the prince of Persia detained me these 21 days until Michael came to my rescue. Demonic powers intercepted the answer of prayer. There was a spiritual battle that began to unfold when prayer was made, and finally the victory is won and the answer was received. Entering into prayer is entering into quite often in very many ways spiritual battle. That's why the Bible teaches explicitly and over and over again we are to persevere in prayer. We are to be importune. That is insisting with persistence. We are to ask and to seek and to knock. You see the increase in intensity there. We ask, we seek, we knock. Because prayer is spiritual warfare. And also, God's not always on our timeline. <laughs> so we persevere in prayer, trusting that God is going to move, that God is going to act, that God is going to listen. I love that prayer of the psalmist. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning. He wasn't doubting that it was absent ever, just that he didn't always hear it. His mercies are new every morning. His loving kindness is new every morning. He's saying, let my ears be attuned to your loving kindness and your mercy. Let me catch that in my day. Let me not miss that in my runnings. Because I trust in you. Teach me the way that I should walk. Because I lift my soul to you. So how did God respond? God sent a prophet. Okay, he dealt with it. He answered. And then God shouldered the problem. He sent a prophet and he shouldered the problem. Sorry, in verse 15. And he said, this is a prophet, listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jurel. Listen to what the Lord is doing. He's giving him strategy here. He says, first of all, in verse 15, don't fear, the battle belongs to the Lord, but tomorrow you go up against them. The weight of the battle always depends upon the Lord. It doesn't mean apathy for us. It doesn't mean we do anything. God has called us into partnership. They were still gonna do something, but the weight of the battle depended upon the Lord. And then God gave them strategy. Behold, they're gonna come up on the ascent of Ziz. It hasn't happened yet here. This is prophecy. And you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness at Jeruel. The Lord giving them strategy for the battle. God will do this in our lives. Strategy for the difficulties, whatever the difficulty might be. My teenager's going nuts, so Lord, what do I do? How far do I press? What, what do I say? What do I not say? The Lord will give you strategy for this. 
Lord, we're, we're in a spiritual battle. We're, we're starting this new work here. We're starting this Bible study here. We, we want to see, oh, hi, one for the Lord. We want to do this and that and the other. How do we approach it? The Lord will give you strategy. Lord, my, my, my marriage, it's in a difficult spot, and I don't feel like I'm, I'm connecting with my bride, and we're just missing each other, and we're, we're bickering, and, and we're bitter. What do I do? The Lord will give you strategy. That's what he did here. Verse 17. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out and face them, for the Lord is with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites from the sons of the Kohathites and the sons of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. The Lord comes through his prophet and says twice in verses 15 and 17, do not fear. Did you know that the Bible says 365 times to us, do not fear? 365 times in the Bible, we find do not fear. Once for every day, do not fear. Because God is absolutely faithful. He said, the battle's not yours, but God's. You don't have to fight in this battle. Stand and see, for the Lord is with you. I love that. Stand and see. Stand firm. Take your place, but stand and watch the Lord do it. Standing meaning don't withdraw. Don't freak out. Don't flip out. Don't be apathetic. Station yourself. Stand and see. I love the internal consistency of the word of God here. God is speaking to Jehoshaphat, and Jerusalem and Judah, the way that he's spoken to his people all throughout. Moses said, when the chariots of Pharaoh were pursuing them at the Exodus, in Exodus 14, but Moses said to the people, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you'll never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Very similar there. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you come to this place. Isn't that beautiful? How the Lord carried you just like a man carries his son. He's our father. He wants to carry us. You see, those who trust him in the pivotal moments of life experience this sort of rest. If you take things in your own hands, then they're in your own hands. You miss out on this. Joshua 23. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you. But you are to cling to the Lord your God as you've done to this day. For the Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts to flight a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you just as he promised you. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. That's great. New Testament, James 4, verses 7 and 8. Submit therefore to God. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. 
It's exactly what Jehoshaphat's doing. God, what do you want us to do? We're going to submit to your purposes. Stand, he was told. Stand. Stand firm and resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Don't fall into the folly of not trusting the Lord in the pivotal moments of life. Don't halfway trust the Lord. Don't sort of trust the Lord. Don't let it be the Lord in some of your ingenuity. Trust the Lord. He's not going to remove you from the equation. He's going to have stuff for you to do. Just as we'll see in a moment, they had to participate and do stuff. But trust and obey. I love what Isaiah 42 says, one of the theme verses of this church prophetically given to us before this church started. Verses 12 and 13. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout, yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. So God sent a prophet. God shouldered the problem. And God gave the victory through praises. Look in verse 20. And they rose early in the morning, went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, listen to me. All Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, put your trust in the Lord your God and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. And when he consulted with the people, he appointed, look, those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire. And they went out before the army and said, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. Notice, this must have been something the prophet told Jehoshaphat, the protocol of the Lord, but instead of sending the army into the battlefield first, he sends a worship team into the battlefield first. Those who are willing to praise the Lord in the face of adversity, he says, these are the most potent ones. This power outdoes the sword and the shield and the buckler. This power outdoes the chariot and the spear, the javelin. This power outdoes anything else. Send those who are willing to praise God in adversity into the midst of the battle, and let's see what that does. And then look, verse 22. And when they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. Wait a minute, you got to get this picture. This is literal and historical. In holy attire, in these little worship team garbs, here it's black t-shirts and jeans, but then it was this white, this roby type thing, and this holy attire, they go into the battlefield, the worship team, and they walk out in the midst of the battlefield, the army behind them, and can't you hear the mocking voice of the enemy? It's the same voice that you'll hear from the enemy today when you employ this strategy. Can't you hear the sons of Ammon and Moab, and the Edomites, can't you hear them saying, are you kidding me? This is what you bring into the battlefield? Look at us, look at all our stuff, look at our chariots and our swords and everything, and you're going to come and sing your little songs? <laughs> you 
got to be kidding me. Oh, this is great. Look at this. Look at check that, check that. Can't you hear the voice of the mocker? You've heard the voice of the mocker. You know that. That's exactly what he does. Listen, we are a people called to praise. We have been saved that we might praise and know him. And praise is most powerful in the midst of the battle. And what made all the difference in the battle was that they sang praises to the Lord in the midst of the battlefield. And here's the neat thing about, about praise and worship. It seems to confuse and confound the enemy. They turned on themselves and they wiped each other out. They were previously in alliance. They were buddies. They were pals. They were like war friends. And they wiped each other out. And all the while, Israel's there just singing praises to their God. Now translate this to our enemy, the devil. Praise confounds the enemy. It routes him and his purposes. It causes him to flee. What did Lucifer want to be or what was he once but the worship leader in heaven? What did he want to be but worshiped in the place of God? And so now anytime that he hears in this world God's people praising their God, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard to him. It's the worst sound he could ever imagine. There is a victory that is won in praise. And in the pivotal moments of life, we're called to praise the Lord. And the Lord, the Lord set an ambush for the enemy. I love what Martin Luther said. He said, let's sing praises to the Lord and spite the devil. Warfare worship. What does it mean to spite? The verb means to deliberately hurt, annoy, or defend somebody. Let's worship the Lord and hurt, annoy, not defend, offend the devil. Let's worship the Lord and hurt and annoy and offend the enemy and see the victory of the Lord. So God sent a prophet. God shouldered the problem. God gave the victory through praises. And finally, God provided bountifully. Verse 24, when Judah came to the lookout of the wilderness and they looked toward the multitude and behold, there were corpses lying on the ground and no one had escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found much among them, including goods, garments, and valuable things, which they took for themselves, more than they could carry. And they were three days taking up the spoil because there was so much. Remember, when these armies came into Canaan, they wanted to dispel Judah. They wanted to kick them out of the land. They, they planned on inhabiting, settling the land. So they brought all their junk with them. So what did God do? God bountifully provided. God did more than Jehoshaphat ever expected. It would have been enough for Jehoshaphat if they just survived, if they just won the battle. But now they're reaping all this benefit that they never even thought of. And that's totally how God is in our lives. Like last night, when I went to dinner at my mom's house, <laughs> I had asked for portobello mushrooms with goat cheese. Salad in olive oil and um, asparagus cooked in roasted garlic. Don't smell me today. Right, like 15 cloves of garlic. So she made all, and brown rice, that's her brown rice. She made all of those things, and then when it was over, she brought out fresh berries, and then she brought out Klondike bars, <laughs> and then she brought out two different flavors of Haagen-Dazs ice cream. I was looking for dinner. She wanted to give much more than just that. You see, that's how God is in our lives. 
Does it not say in Ephesians 3.20? Now to him who is able to do exceedingly more than we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. He is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything that we even thought to ask him, the Lord does. He's more willing to bless us than we are willing to be blessed. You see, we're like Martha and Mary. Lazarus got sick, and Martha and Mary, they wanted a healing. But Jesus wanted to give them a resurrection. That's our God. We come to God saying, oh, God, would you just kind of fix this and massage that and heal this? And, but God wants to give resurrections. God is all about giving brand new life. They were looking for a healing. Jesus comes and gives a resurrection to Lazarus, more than they ever expected or even ever thought to ask is what God did. That's who God is in our life. But you see, there's a protocol to times of difficulty. And then look how joy replaces the fear. Verse 26. Then on the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, and they blessed the Lord. Barakah means blessing or praises. So they get in the valley of blessing, right? They're reaping all that stuff, and in the valley of praises, and there they bless the Lord. Therefore, they have named that place the valley of Barakah until today. And every man of Judah and Jerusalem returned with Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. And they came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the dread of God was on all the kingdoms of all the lands when they had heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And finally, verse 30, so the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace. For his God gave him rest on all sides. Isn't that good? Look what the Lord did. Look what the Lord did. Yes, praise the Lord. Lord, we thank you that that's who you are. We thank you that you're the God that does exceeding abundantly. You're so much more wonderful than we could imagine, so much more able than we even know, Lord. And so we ask in the difficulty of life that you please help us to turn our attention toward you to lead others to do the same. Teach us to praise you in the difficult moments, to stand on your promises, to trust in your purposes, and to make these things your problem. Thank you that you carry us like a father carries a son. And Lord, in our lives today, we need this. This can't just be a Bible story for us. We need this truth. And so Holy Spirit, come and apply it to our lives. Holy Spirit, come meet us in our valleys of trouble and open up a door of hope. Come meet us in our brokenness and do more than heal, resurrect. Give new life to places that are wilting and weak. Restore faith in this house this morning. Teach us to enter into that rest, Lord. You gave Jehoshaphat rest on all sides and you're the same God and we're just like him. We need you. We trust you, Lord. If you need help today, prayer team is here to help. Communion is here. Help us remember and experience the presence and the promises of Christ.